Welcome back to my Love Letter Time Machine. Hi, I'm Ingrid Birchall Hughes, and I'm serialising the love letters of my great great grandparents, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. Travel 140 years back in time with me now, where we take a look at Victorian history through their eyes. And today, Fred and Janie discuss who is going to be Fred's best man. Fred goes to see a practice of the North Yorkshire Artillery Volunteers. And we take a look at the Victorian tradition of the language of flowers. This time, we are starting off by immediately going down one of my research rabbit holes into Victorian culture. In his next letter, Fred mentions that he's enclosed some sweetbriar, another name for wild rose, and wonders as to its meaning in the language of flowers. So, of course, I had to find out a bit more about that. Flowers have had meanings for many hundreds of years. Rosemary for Remembrance was famously mentioned by Shakespeare in Hamlet. The diminutive blue forget-me-nots carry their meaning in their name, and the rose has been recognised as a symbol of love since its associations with the goddess Aphrodite in ancient Greece. The language of flowers, or floriography as it was also known, was a bit of a mainly posh people's craze for sending secret messages to each other in the form of assigning meanings to the flowers they sent in their bouquets. Dictionaries of the secret meanings were extremely popular, the first ones appearing in the early 1800s, and by Janie's time there were many to choose from. Published in 1884 by popular artist and illustrator Kate Greenaway, the illuminated language of flowers, over 700 flowers and plants listed alphabetically with their meanings, is often thought to be one of the last publications in the floriography tradition filled with charming illustrations of women and children wearing Regency costumes, carrying the baskets of the flowers in question. The text is simply a long alphabetical list of flowers, each with a very short description of just a few words. Snowdrops mean hope, which I guess makes sense as they are the first blooms we see after the barrenness of winter. Violets signify modesty, and white lilies purity and sweetness. The messages of the flowers were not always lovely. A yellow rose could mean a decrease of love, or even jealousy, especially if it was put together with some marigolds. And a bunch of anemones might even mean you'd been dumped, as the meaning for those was forsaken. There are also some off-the-wall inclusions. The unlikely present of a bunch of dead leaves meant sadness. Being given mandrake was supposed to convey horror, and I'm certain it would. And the offer of potato roots or flowers, I'm not entirely sure, indicated benevolence, all of which gives you cause to wonder how the list was put together in the first place. Flowers were mostly the preserve of the wealthy and middle classes. They were not usually something that working class people could afford, beyond what they might have been able to grow. Fred sending sprigs of hawthorn and now sweetbriar in his letters were obviously sourced from an obliging shrub on his walk. I do actually have, wrapped in a piece of tissue paper, a very old dry sprig of heather that is on the verge of crumbling into dust. And I'm sure this is something that Fred must have tucked into one of Janie's letters. I'm amazed that it survived all this time. 
Janie was perhaps able to pay a bit more interest in something like the language of flowers because she lived next door to Hansworth Nurseries and was in the habit of taking people there for a visit. She mentions buying flowers there too, and I wonder if she was able to take advantage from end-of-day sales or cheaper prices if the nurseries were selling off the blooms that were just going over. I get the distinct impression that Janie didn't just like flowers the normal amount, but actually adored them, the nurseries giving her access to far more exotic varieties and colour than most people of her class would normally have been exposed to. According to the Kate Greenaway book, Sweetbriar means I wound to heal. But as we see, Fred and Janie decide to make up their own meaning for it anyway. Albert Terrace, Linthorpe Road, Middlesbrough, July the 30th, 1882. My own darling wife, you would no doubt notice that I did not reply to your letter of Thursday. I got the gift of the tie all right, the first thing in the morning, but did not get the letter until I got home at night after eight o'clock and then had sent your letter off. I noticed by the postmark that it had been sent to Whitby and then posted to Middlesbrough afterwards and delivered by the afternoon delivery. I thought it was rather strange you had not written a few lines, but I thought you must have been pressed for time and could not write. I am sorry that your Emma and Polly fell out, as I am sure Polly would not give her cause for it. You say you wish I had been there to hear, love. I think I should just like to see and hear her when she is properly on. Just for curiosity, you know but very likely I should get too disgusted to listen to her, and I know it would make me feel sorry. So perhaps I am far better away from her, and you will not be long now, darling, before you leave her too, and I know you will not be very sorry and reluctant to do that. Banks and Alvy played three games at billiards, of which Alvy won two and Banks the other. They are usually well matched, but then Tom had just a little of the best of the play. I am sorry that Ted and Miss Dalton did not turn up on Thursday night, love, as I should like to know how he was getting on. He had not written since Easter, neither had I. I will now turn to your loving letter which I received this morning, darling. I was up this morning at half past seven. I don't usually get up so early on Sunday mornings, but I was very much troubled with the old complaint, and I could not sleep after that. I am looking forward to our meeting, wifey, for then you will be able to set me straight again with pleasure to both of us. I have not been troubled since you left, so that it would almost seem as though it were time to see you again, which I think is quite true. You see, love, when we are married, all my uncomfortableness of this kind will disappear. You must excuse my mentioning this matter to you, love, but you know you are my wife and so perhaps should know how I am affected. I had a slice of bread, and then went into the park for a while, and to wait until your letter came. It was a beautiful morning, but scorching hot. I got a little sweet briar for you, love. I don't know what sweet briar means in the language of flowers, but I send it to mean that I love you more than ever, and that I am counting the days to our meeting next Saturday. Oh, my darling, it will be a pleasure to see and kiss you again, and to feel that you are near me. After I had walked around the park and had a sleep on one of the seats, I came in to breakfast and your letter, which has never failed me once all the time I have been here. I always think that no matter how busy you may be, you will always find time to screw in a few lines to your husband, who loves you so much, and who always looks forward to your Sunday letter. 
I am afraid you will not give me a good mark for writing this time, love, but you must excuse me, darling, as I feel as though I couldn't shape the letters properly today, and I can't find a pen to suit me. I thought you would be pleased to hear of my increase, darling. Of course, I was quite prepared to hear that you thought it was not more than I deserved. I do, almost. I sometimes think that my success is almost too good to be true and real and quite expect to wake up and find myself working for 28 shillings again with the prospect of marriage on 35. I shall only realise it, I think, when you are here for good and we are really settled down as man and wife, darling. I shall remember, love, that you are saving a kiss for me, but I shall not, as you know very well, be satisfied with just one, my darling. A thousand and one would be more like it, I think. Of course, you would be the boss's love at home, you know, over me and the children and the house generally. I am glad you think I am not difficult to agree with, love. I think you had better make a note of this admission, because if you and I disagree, it will be entirely on your account by your own statement. I don't think we shall fall out, love, so don't be frightened. We shall get on all right, if we are only mindful not to disagree over trifles, which generally make homes unhappy. I shall be very pleased to bring you the cuffs and collar, love, and something else as well, if I can find anything nice enough, my darling. If not, I will bring my humble self, which I know will quite satisfy you, won't it? I am pleased the cake boxes have come, love, and that you like them. You must not forget to show them to me when I come over. I am glad you agree with me about the sacred music, love. I thought you would do so, and I put it down to forgetfulness on your part. Of course, I will forgive you, love this once. I am pleased to hear that your John got a little more work to do. I wish I could be the means of his getting a good job, but I really don't know what he would be able to do. I will write to Fred, love, about being best man at our wedding. I don't think he would care to come, as I have not had a letter from him since February. I almost think he wants to cut my acquaintance. However, I'll give him the first chance, and then if he does not accept it, I will ask John Mies. I know he will only be too pleased to fill the unpleasant office. I do remember the Attercliffe feast we enjoyed so much, darling. It was a treat. I expect your feast will not be very enjoyable, at least for you, my darling, but it will be the last you will attend in your present capacity. Banks and I went to Hartlepool yesterday. We took the ferry to Port Clarence, on the other side of the river, then the train to Seton Carew. This is a place which stands in the same position as Redcar on the other side of the river. It is not so nice, I think, as Redcar. There is no promenade, and the place is much commoner. We walked from Seaton to West Hartlepool on the sands, about three miles. We saw the artillery volunteers practising for the last time before they go to compete at Shoebriness next week. They won the Queen's Prize last year and shot splendidly yesterday. When we got to Hartlepool, we had a look round the town. I don't like it so much as Middlesbrough there. There are too many sailors knocking about and the town is not so nice looking. We then went to the theatre where Banks is playing. I went up in the boxes for which he got me an order so that I had not to pay. I did not care for the performance. It was very common. Suitable for the town, no doubt, but not in my line at all. We came home by the 10.35 train. I did wish I had been with you, darling. The moon was full, I think, and it shone splendidly. Do you remember ever going for a walk on a moonlit night, love, and somebody telling you how he loved you? That somebody still loves you, my darling, and loves you ten thousand times more than he did then. I was wishing the moon had been full next week, love. 
but it will not make much difference as we never seem to have a night to ourselves, and this time I expect will be similar. Saturday will be at our house, then the Wellingtons at your house, Sunday night again at our house, and Monday again at our house, I expect. It will only seem like a few minutes instead of three days. But we must not complain, darling. We shall soon be together for life, and then I shan't have to hurry from you. Only one more parting for us, love, and then I shall bring you with me. Did you remember me to Polly, love, and give her a flattering sketch of Middlesbrough? It has been raining since one o'clock, but has now cleared off. I wish I could walk in the park or anywhere with you, but I shall do so next Sunday, love, so must not complain. I love you, my darling wife, more than ever, and remain your loving, true and faithful husband, Fred. I thought I'd look up a bit of information about the North Yorkshire artillery volunteers that Fred and Banks went to see practising. The tradition of having a reserve force in England in many areas over a thousand years. Volunteer bodies were organised, trained and paid for locally. It was only until 1756 that these forces became centrally formalised when Parliament decided a well-ordered and well-disciplined militia was essentially necessary for the safety, peace and prosperity of the kingdom, and in 1757 and 1762 passed Acts for National Funding. Officers were drawn from property-owning classes, and the volunteer servicemen, between the ages of 18 and 50, were chosen by ballot. They served initially for three years, and that later became five. You could get out of serving, but you had to either appoint a substitute or pay a fine. The advent of the Napoleonic Wars strengthened the links between the militia and the regular army, and the Act of 1809 enabled militiamen to enlist in the forces. At the time, more than 380,000 men in Great Britain and Ireland were part of the local militia and volunteer forces. By the time we get to the latter part of the Victorian era, training had become more formalised and militia recruits were allowed 49 days a year in training, they were provided with free kit and they got paid. Records for 1906 say that per week, Infantry got seven shillings a week and artillery servicemen received eight shillings and five pence. In April 1882, the artillery militia was reorganised into 11 territorial regions as part of the Coastal Defence Force and the Yorkshire unit became part of the Northern Division. Shortly afterwards, the artillery volunteers were also added to the divisions and this may be one of the reasons they became of more interest, prompting many spectators to go and watch their training sessions. There doesn't seem to be a report of the training session that Fred went to see, but there is one for the month before in the Daily Gazette for Middlesbrough, Tuesday 27th of June 1882. It reads, Rifle Contest, Middlesbrough versus North Allerton. On Monday, a contest took place on the North Allerton Rifle Range between seven of the company of rifle volunteers and the same number of the number one battery Middlesbrough North York Artillery Volunteers. The conditions were that each man 
fire three shots from the Snyder and three shots from the carbine at 200 and 300 yards. The article then goes on to list the scores of the individual men. The North York Artillery Volunteers scored a total of 196 and the North Allerton Rifles won with 220. Meanwhile, back in Hansworth, Janie is full of the local news and she starts to encourage Fred in seriously getting on with the job of choosing a best man. Hansworth, August the 1st, 1882. My own darling husband, I was so pleased to receive your nice long letter yesterday. It was a treat, love, and sorry I could not reply last night, but I was so busy up to the time I expected Louisa and Jane. I was to meet them by the nurseries and to go through. So I got dressed and went down a little before three and did not meet them until I got to the bridge, and then only Louisa, Tilly and Walter. Jane had sent word to Louisa that she could not come. She was busy washing, and Mrs Hawley could not get down so that she could not leave it. We went through the nurseries. Louisa and the children enjoyed it very much. There were not so many flowers out this time as when Emily and your mother went through, but the roses looked beautiful. We must have stopped in the grounds nearly two hours. So we had tea rather late, so I could not get a letter written, darling. You know I do not disappoint you if I can help it. I did notice, love, that you did not reply to my letter of Thursday, but thought you would have got it all right as I posted it as the same time as the tie. Our Emma went down to Fred's to tea yesterday. I was rather pleased she did so. I shall not be sorry or reluctant to leave her. Only ten weeks on Thursday and then, darling, I leave them all and cling to you, my husband. I was sorry Ted and Miss Dalton did not come. I wanted to hear all about their wedding. When I saw Ted that last Monday, he said it was your turn to write. Maria Staniforth asked me to go to tea last Sunday, so I went. They said they thought they had offended me as I had gone past without calling. I don't know why they would think so. We were going to Darnall Church, Maria, Emma Gill and I, but I happened to say I should like to go to Attercliffe. They said they should. We were to go then. I thought you would not mind, love, so we went. I did not think they would go when I said so, but they took it up very quickly. We were rather late, so had to sit very low down the church, which made it not quite so enjoyable as before, as everything echoes, and I could not scarcely tell anything Mr Dutledge said. I saw and spoke to your old sweetheart, Miss Craven. Maggie was not there, she is away. And I saw Annie Johnson, Mr Roxbury, Mr and Mrs Johnson and Arthur Johnson. I talked with them for a few minutes. Annie Johnson told me she was going to Cleethorpes yesterday to spend a week there. I told her I did not think she would care for it very much. It is such a dead alive place. Do you think she would love? I did not see anybody else that I knew, only Harriet and Miss Watson, and I missed them as we came out. Maria and Emma brought me to Hansworth as far as Mr William's house. I am very sorry you were troubled with your old complaint on Sunday morning, darling. When we are married, you will not be troubled with any uncomfortableness of that kind. It does seem as though it were time to see me again. I hope I shall be able to set you straight again, as I do not like you to be troubled at all, and as you say, with pleasure to both of us. I do think I ought to know how you are affected being your wife, darling, so quite excuse you saying anything about it. I wish I could have gone in the park with you on Sunday morning, love. The sweet briar does smell nice. We will have to take it to mean that you and I love each other as much as it is possible to love. I do wish Saturday was here. I do want to see you. It will be pleasure to feel you near me, love. 
I wish I could have watched over your slumbers in the park. I do always try to screw a letter in for Sunday, my husband, though I am very busy sometimes. I can quite excuse the writing not being quite as good. I can't always write my best, love. You can write a deal better some days than others, and I do not mind the writing much, love. It was such a nice long one. You certainly have been successful since you went to Middlesbrough. It does seem almost too good to be true and real sometimes, love, to think that I shall soon be with you and we shall not have to live on 28 shillings. But I knew you would get on, darling. I always felt sure of that and always feel proud of you. Oh, darling, we shall be happy when we are together, when we are man and wife. I know you will not be satisfied with one kiss, love, but we will try to put that in as an extra one. One thousand and one would be more like it. I don't think we shall fall out, love. I don't feel very much afraid, as we have not had many quarrels so far, and not likely to disagree over trifles. If you bring your very humble self, darling, you will quite satisfy me. Annie Johnson said Fred Johnson is coming on Friday, love, so if you have not written to him, you will very likely be able to see him and ask about being best man. Annie also said he would have met you the last time you came over, but he thought he might be in the way. I told you I met him down the station road. Our feast will not be very enjoyable for me, darling, but I shall feel greatly comforted to think it is the last one I shall attend in my present capacity. We are going to have a conservative meeting tonight. I think there will be about a hundred. I wish it was over, as Kate and I will have to do the waiting, and it is not the pleasantest thing you could imagine to wait off so many people. I wish you had been with me instead of going to Hartlepool, love. It was a splendid night, just one of our old nights that we used to enjoy. I do remember that moonlit night, darling, when you told me you loved me. Can I ever forget it when it has brought me such happiness, my husband? We did love then, but we do love each other ten thousand times more now. I'm afraid we shall not have much time together this time, love. We shall have to run about as usual. It will not seem long, but we will not complain, darling, this last parting, and then I shall be with you forever. I remembered you to Polly, love, and gave her a very flattering sketch of Middlesbrough. I cannot write more now, love, only three days. I love you more than ever and remain your loving, true and faithful wife, Janie. Royal Exchange, Middlesbrough, the North Eastern Steel Company Limited, August the 2nd, 1882. My own darling wife, I was just a little disappointed yesterday on not receiving a letter from you, but I expected you would be too busy. I should have liked to have gone through the nurseries with you, love, on Monday. It is some years since I had a look through. I am pleased your Emma went to Fred's to tea, love, as she might have been awkward as she might have been awkward, and then our Louisa might not have enjoyed the out. I thought I had written to Ted last. I suppose I shall have to give him a few lines. I am rather pleased you went to Attective Church last Sunday night, love. I intend going myself next Sunday, if possible, just to see old friends for the last time. I don't think Annie Johnson will like Cleethorpes, but of course it depends how she is situated with regards to lodgings and companionship. I think you and I would enjoy ourselves now, even there, if we could have a week there, don't you? I knew you believed that I should get on wifey even when I was most doubtful, and that, I think, has kept me up when I used to have my fits of despondency. I don't have them now, as money matters are pretty comfortable. 
I am pleased that you have confidence in me, darling, and that makes me have confidence in myself. I have written to Fredlove about the question you spoke of. I expect I shall have a letter in return before Saturday. I don't think he really wanted to see me, and being in the way was only an excuse for not coming up. I am pleased that you'll feel greatly comforted to think that the next feast will be the last you will attend as barmaid. I should myself prefer to take you away before, but we cannot manage it. I have had a little bother with our foreman engineer today about the timekeeper. He has been giving him instructions, which of course he ought not to do as he is under my control. I put it down to a try-on, which he mustn't do with me. Mr Cooper has settled the matter, which has ended in a compromise. I have not time for any more, love, except that I love you more than ever and remain your loving, true and faithful husband, Fred. It's rather sad to hear that Fred Johnson appears to be ghosting our Fred. Their friendship seems to be suffering. I wonder if it's the distance. I know I've said before that Fred Johnson rubs me up the wrong way, and I've never been able to justify it, really. But also, I'm kind of not surprised. We'll hear more about what happens next week, when Fred returns to Sheffield for a visit. And Janie gets a bit of a fright when her cousin Maria Staniforth suddenly falls ill. Thank you so much for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. I'd very much like to share Fred and Janie's story with more people. So if you haven't already, can I ask you to share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it? You can also find excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, all one word. And you can write to me at my love letter time machine at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.